everyone. You're listening to No Planet B, a podcast about climate change. I'm Wyatt Jordan, and joining me is Brianna Waterman. On this episode, we're talking about air quality. We have an interview here with Mike Kleeman, who is a professor and researcher at UC Davis. His research mainly focuses on urban and regional air quality problems with an emphasis on the size and composition of atmospheric particles. So he came on to talk to us about air pollution and its effects on health the effects of ozone, and how climate change is going to be affecting air quality and vice versa. So without further ado, here's that interview. Hope you like it. First of all, thank you for being here. Thanks for talking to us today. Sure. My pleasure. So what are the connections between air pollution and health, and which connections are the most pressing? Air pollution causes a number of health issues. Uh, So asthma and reduced lung function, uh, respiratory infections, Uh, If we look across the broader population, we can even see things that are uh, more subtle but still pressing public health concerns. So we can see things like low birth weight or preterm birth uh, going up in areas where the air pollution is higher. Uh, This kind of culminates in the most severe effects where we we do see increased death rates uh, where air pollution is higher. And the World Health Organization, as one example of this, estimates that there's 4.2 million premature deaths each year that are linked to ambient air pollution. So it's a it's a pressing public health issue. How do they determine if a death is caused by air pollution? So they look for statistical associations. So there's a there's a seasonal variation in the death rate, and um, you know it, it changes uh, depending on the demographics of each location and you know the nutrition and other things. But you can see differences even when you normalize for all those other factors. You can see differences between cities with higher pollution versus cities with lower pollution. Uh-huh. The most famous example of this in the United States, at least, is a, a study that was carried out uh, by Harvard called the Six City Study, where they looked at um, your life expectancy in six U.S. cities. And they can see clear differences between those cities and and those differences correlated with the pollution levels in those cities. And so that's just one example of of many, many types of studies that have been carried out across big populations where you can use the power of statistics. And and the differences are are clear. It's it's definitely the case that living in a a city with pollution, with air pollution, uh, increases your chances of dying earlier. Ozone and particulate matter are the two classic ingredients of what we've come to call photochemical smog. So if you look out on a on a smoggy day, you know, the atmosphere doesn't look clear, uh, looks kind of nasty, hazy, maybe it has a brown tinge to it. Those are all uh, the different pieces of photochemical smog. So ozone is a, a clear gas, though you can't see it. Um, and it's made up of a molecule that has three oxygens in it. And so You know, that's um, a little bit confusing to people because oxygen is our friend. We breathe uh, a molecule with two oxygens in it all the time. That's part of what we need to live. Um, But when you add that third oxygen atom to the oxygen molecule, so it becomes O3 instead of O2, uh, then it becomes uh, something that uh, we don't need and we actually don't want around us. It's an oxidant at that point. It wants to give away that extra oxygen in a chemical reaction. So um, a simple science experiment that you can do is to expose a rubber band to ozone. And what you observe is that it no longer is elastic after some time. It becomes brittle and it cracks. And that's because the ozone has given one of its oxygens over to the rubber in the rubber band. That's caused a chemical reaction and it loses its elasticity. 
So in a really, really simplified manner, you can think of that same thing happening to your lungs. When you breathe ozone, uh, you will have reactions happening in your body then that are going to uh, you know, cause issues in your lungs. And anyone that has uh, been exposed to high ozone levels and then, um, you know, whether playing frisbee or soccer or jogging outside and then try to take a deep breath and you'll cough. And, and that's that same sort of thing happening uh, in your lungs. Not to be confused, though, with the ozone layer in the upper atmosphere. The ozone layer is a good thing. Uh, that's that blocks harmful incoming UV radiation. And we want that ozone in the upper atmosphere. We just don't want it in the lower atmosphere where we're breathing the air. Uh, so we, we have a different approach uh, for managing the lower atmosphere than we do for the upper atmosphere. So, so that's one part of the classic photochemical smog ozone. The other part is airborne particles. Those are microscopic droplets of solid or liquid material uh, that stay suspended in the atmosphere because they're so tiny that they don't, they don't fall down. So gravity acts the same no matter what the size, but the drag force on the particle uh, becomes large uh, for those really small ones relative to the gravity force. And that means that the, the random motions of the wind can keep those particles suspended in the air for long, long periods of time. And so they can travel for miles. Uh, so uh, the particles are are the big health driver, basically. They um, they can get into our deep lung if they're small enough, say smaller than around 2.5 microns. That's what we call uh, particles that can make it past our nose and down into our deep lung. And some of them will interact with our lungs and interact with our bodies. And there's a whole size spectrum of particles. You know, 2.5 microns isn't the smallest ones that we have out there. There's, there's particles all the way down as small as we can measure them, even smaller than 0.1 microns. And those really tiny particles can go right through our cells. And so they can circulate in our body. They get into our blood. They get into all of our major organs. They even get into our brains. And so, you know, those are the ones that we're, we're really concerned, uh, things that can make it down into your lung and then maybe even penetrate deeper into your body. We're really concerned about the health effects of those particles. So when you're thinking about particles, then you have to remember the size. Uh, and there are some terms that get used that are, are handy to remember. When we talk about PM10, those are particles smaller than 10 microns. When we talk about PM 2.5, those are particles smaller than 2.5 microns. And then when we talk about PM 0.1, those are particles smaller than 0.1 microns. Um, and and we, the sources and the health effects of those things are very different. So we have to sort of keep them separate in our minds as we try to uh, think about policies to protect public health from air pollution. People sometimes have a hard time understanding what a micron is. Uh, a micron is, is, you know, a really small uh, measurement of length. We, we can't see it uh, normally without the aid of a microscope or something like that. So uh, a measuring stick that's sometimes handy is, you know, your hair is about 60 microns in diameter, six zero sixty. And so when we talk about 2.5 microns, that's a really small particle. Uh, and even 0 0.1 microns, that's, that's a really, really microscopic small particle. And it's, you know, these are the things that get into your body and, and cause the health effects. Mm -hmm. And so what are the biggest source contributors of particulate matter in the U.S.? And I'd also like to extend that question to ozone as well, if you'd like to. Yeah, sure. Well, so uh, I'll start with particles. The, and it, here we come back to the size because the um, different sources emit particles at different sizes. And so mm. 
if you look at the big particles, the, let's say we, we uh, look at PM10 to start with, you get a lot of things like dust sources that might dominate those particles. So everything from unpaved roads to agriculture or even just natural wind-blown dust can contribute really strongly to the PM10 number. But, it, mm. you know, if we focus on the ones that can make it past your nose, can get down into your uh, deeper lungs, that's PM2.5, 2, 2 let's say, then they're almost all directly or indirectly coming from burning something. So whether it's uh, wildfire, whether it's, uh, you know, cooking a hamburger over an open flame, whether it's driving your car down the road or, or something else, uh, you're, you're releasing particles from that operation directly and you're releasing some gases that can then further react in the atmosphere to produce particles later on. Uh, we call that either direct particles or indirect particles, depending on uh, whether it's, it starts its life as a particle or just forms a particle later on. Mm -hmm. So the sources are really varied for uh, PM 2.5, but it, you know, broadly it's things that are burning that, that cause that. We've done a, a pretty good job over the past decades of trying to figure out what the major sources are and, and control those emissions. So, um, you know, we've had controls on everything from automobiles and diesel engines to uh, coal-fired power plants have all been uh, trying to uh, aim at reducing those PM2.5 particles uh, in the atmosphere. There's still some remaining sources that could be controlled uh, you know, wood-burning fireplaces are one that is still kind of loosely controlled. And then the food cooking operations in a lot of places are still uh, kind of loosely controlled. So when you see that smoke pouring out of your favorite hamburger joint, uh, that's actually particles. And those things, uh, although they smell good and they make you hungry, they, they will have health effects. Mm. And, and we should try to limit those. So, so there's still more that we can do uh, to try to understand that. Uh, the community is... Um, you know, most interested these days in trying to understand where some of that indirect uh, particle loading is coming from and trying to, to limit that. So that takes us all into the chemistry of the atmosphere and, and how these things form. What are the precursor gas phase things that might be causing that? And it's, it's really complicated and we're still, we're still working on fully understanding all of that uh, to, so that we can, um, you know, figure out where those indirect particles are coming from and and control those sources more effectively. And then just a few words about the smallest particles, those, those ones that are smaller than 0.1 microns, uh, those also come from combustion sources if we're looking at um, the burden across the United States. Uh, but you tend to see different types of combustion sources maybe dominating those. And so uh, even things that burn clean fuels like natural gas can produce those particles. Uh, they, they make up a small uh, amount of the total mass of particles in the atmosphere, but the, the ones that are really, really small, they, they have a big contribution from uh, natural gas combustion. So uh, things like that, things like uh, aircraft and, and other combustion sources uh, that might not dominate the, uh, the PM 2.5, but they, they do play major roles when you look really, really small uh, and, and focus on where those particles are coming from. Would you be able to name a few more common air pollutants? that affect human health? Well, sure. So we've talked a little bit about the health effects of ozone and PM 2.5. Um, and and they, they generally act by, you know, in really broad description terms, they cause inflammation in your body. And then that triggers a whole bunch of sort of cascading health effects uh, and, and could ultimately even increase the, 
the risk of death. Uh, some air pollutants, though, are directly toxic, uh, and that is that you know they they're just bad for you. If if you would touch them in a, a liquid pail, then they would be bad for you. Or if you put them up as a a gas or a, a particle in the atmosphere, they're still bad for you. So uh, one class of compounds that falls into that, say, is these things called PAHs, uh, is the acronym for it. Um, and they're generally just things that are um, products of incomplete combustion. So if you don't fully burn something and you leave some sort of a sooty residue, uh, then it's likely to have PAHs or in, in them. And those things cause cancer. Uh, so we know that there's also an increased risk of cancer when air pollution is high. And it's, it's because of the actions of compounds like this uh, that will you know, lead to other negative health consequences. So those types of compounds, um, other incomplete combustion compounds, um, you know, oxygenated compounds, carbonyls, uh, those sorts of things are all uh, in the, the soup that we breathe at very, very low levels, but still high enough to, to increase your cancer risk when you're exposed uh, to air pollution. So you mentioned that um, air pollution can be linked to premature death. Is there a certain age group that this will affect more than others or a certain demographic in general that this will affect more than others? Well, absolutely, yes. Um, and, you know, generally, uh, we think that older people are more susceptible to the effects of air pollution. We think that people with pre-existing breathing conditions are more susceptible to the effects of air pollution. So if you're asthmatic already, uh, then mm -hmm. you know high ozone or high particle burdens might cause you even more difficulties. Um, it's really difficult. The, one of the most fascinating puzzles, I guess, about air pollution is that uh, it doesn't necessarily cause most of the deaths by uh, you know sort of impaired lung capacity. Most of the people die because of a cardiovascular event. They have a heart attack. And figuring out the reasons for why that happens has been really, really challenging. We, we have plausible mechanisms, but it's hard to, um, you know, tell for sure which mechanism was active in individual cases. It's hard to study that because um, while the numbers are big, you know, we're talking about tens of thousands of people across the United States each year dying of air pollution. Uh, it's in a population of 300 million. And so, you know, it's a little bit like a needle in a haystack type of, of uh, search to try to identify, you know, did this person who had a heart attack die because air pollution was high that day? And if so, what was the mechanism? And so it's, it's hard to study that. So we think we understand that it's, it's generally people that are older or that have a compromised respiratory system that might be most at risk to this. But, you know, that's, that's probably not all encompassing. So we... We don't expect that it's very, very young people, but, you know, anyone over 30 might might be fair game in this. Have you noticed any trends in air quality within the past 50 years or even more recent than that, if you're better versed in that? This one was so specifically vague or this one. I, I am. I apologize for how vague it is, but I would tell my friends like the, what I'm doing, like doing this interview about air quality and some friends of mine would just be like, oh, how is it? Like, how is it? Is it better? Is it worse? Should we be mad? <laughs> well, it's a great question. I'm happy to answer it, uh, even though it's vague. We can go a lot of different directions. With it. <laughs> Urban and regional air quality across the United States has absolutely improved over the past decades. Um, you know, from the 1970s in Los Angeles, um, you know, even the 1950s in Los Angeles, where 
you know, there's pictures of people with gas masks, <laughs> you know, walking yeah. down the street. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, things have absolutely improved. And and that's largely been because of the, um, you know, the agreement between scientists, regulators, and industry. Uh, so scientists have studied this public health problem for, for over 50 years now and, um, you know, have used the scientific method to try to uh, come up with the the sources and the mechanisms by which air pollution forms. And then regulators have done a good job of encouraging new technology that has addressed the, the sources of the air pollution. And industry has done a fantastic job of adapting to those new regulations and, and still producing services that uh, people, um, people can use and people want. So there's a couple of success stories to you know maybe illustrate that even more clearly, cars and trucks are one example of that. You know, it, you just have to ride your bike behind a 1970s car versus a 2000s car or a 2010 car, and there's no comparison. You know, you can smell that 1970s car, you'll cough, your eyes will water, and, and now that just doesn't happen. The cars, the technology, the engineering that has gone into that has just gotten better by orders of magnitude. And it's a very obvious, apparent sort of success story. But we've seen that played out in a bunch of different areas. So, you know, the consumer products that we buy now, the paint that we buy now, isn't the same as the paint that we bought in the 1970s. It's all been reformulated so that it doesn't emit things that cause air pollution. And, and again, that's been this confluence of science and, and regulators and industry coming up with ways to actually address the problem. And I think it's been... A really great success story. So there's no question that air pollution has improved over the past decades where those three groups have been able to cooperate. You know, we've made this tremendous progress over the, the past decades, but there are still, you know, some regions in the United States where we continue to experience bad air quality, where, where we haven't met the standards that are designed to protect public health. And so we still have work to do in those regions. And, and that's either because we haven't fully implemented the rules that we have on the books yet, uh, or we still have other low-hanging fruit, I'll call it, that we can try to, uh, you know, harvest. So we, we have things like those uh, wood-burning fireplaces or, you know, food cooking operations that are still emitting visible smoke. And, and those are things that we should address uh, to try to um, mitigate air pollution. But, you know, in some areas, it's just really, really challenging, even when we've done those things, even when we've tried to be really, really clean about our uh, what we do. And, and that's largely because, you know, as population increases, we we just see this increasing trend of emissions. People generate emissions that, that lead to air quality. And, and the more people there are, the, the more we have to sort of uh, combat that with with policy goals and with new technologies to try to to be even cleaner. And so it's this constant battle. And, and sometimes you see backsliding. You know, sometimes uh, now we're seeing it in Los Angeles, where in recent years, the peak ozone concentrations have been have been flattening and even going up a bit because of this sort of competition, I guess, between increased population and some of the what's going on with the atmospheric chemistry there, where we are in the chemical regimes uh, and, and how that's playing out. Uh, so there's still further work to, to be done. So we, we can't ever afford to really rest. So there's there's all of those trends going on. And then the one that we should talk about, because it's that season, is wildfires. Yeah. You know, we definitely see drier conditions in the western U.S. now. We see 
a higher incidence of wildfires, more severe wildfires. And those are having more and more of a, you know, a air pollution impact across broad populations. You know, we've had some catastrophic events, quite frankly, in the past couple of years. And, and our likelihood of experiencing those in the future is going up because of climate change. And so, you know, that's definitely a trend that we're going to have to find a way to try to manage in the future. It's a challenge for this generation to, to try to figure out um, what to do about that as a part of the larger climate change issue. And now what should these connections between air quality and public health mean for public policy? Well, I mean, I, I think what it, it says is that uh, the policies that control air pollution are expensive, but they return incredible value. So the United mm. States Environmental Protection Agency took a look at the Clean Air Act regulations across the United States. And uh, those are expensive regulations, but by their estimate, those regulations have saved many tens of thousands of lives each year in the United States. And that has a public health value. And, and so when you look at the value that has been returned by those regulations, they are many times higher than what they cost us. And in fact, they are worth more than anything else that the US government regulates, whether it's transportation safety or food safety. You, you roll all those other things up together and the air quality regulations provide more public health value than those things combined. And so it's just been this incredible success story to control air pollution in the United States. And, and we shouldn't think that it cost us more than it was worth because that's just simply not true. It's, it's been mm. an incredible value all across the United States. So there's, you know, the regulations that are on the books, we should finish implementing those. We shouldn't be rolling those things back. Those things have saved lives and the public benefits have outweighed the costs by far. Now, you know, that's not to say that we can drive it to zero. Um, you know, there's new studies that say that the, the current regulations for air quality, the PM 2.5 regulations, maybe aren't protective enough, that there are still health effects down at even lower concentrations. And there may, there may not be a lower threshold for health effects uh, for, say, something like airborne particles. But does that mean that we should try to drive those concentrations to zero? And and I don't think it does. I mean, because the controls get more and more expensive as you try to control more and more. You know, you, you do the easy, inexpensive things first. But then as you try to be uh, more and more strict in terms of how much air pollution you can tolerate, the controls get more and more expensive as well. And at some point, it just becomes prohibitively expensive. We can't afford to drive human-made air pollution to zero. Mm -hmm. so, so I think you have to start using the analogy of cancer risk. We never drive cancer risk to absolute zero. We, we drive it to some low level. And then that at that point, we say, as a public policy, we can tolerate some level of cancer risk. And I think that we're going to have to have that conversation eventually about air pollution. We're not there yet. You know, mm -hmm. this is a conversation for maybe a decade in the future. But eventually, we're going to have to confront the fact that I don't think that we're going to be able to completely drive our human-made air pollution to zero uh, because it'll be just too prohibitively expensive. And at some point, there will have to be, I hope, what's a science and public policy-led discussion about what a reasonable lower level should be that we should aim for. So like right now, we, we should not be rolling back, but instead going further 
into we should go further until we fully meet the standards that we have we should think about whether we want to take the next step and maybe yeah. lower the standards a little bit more but if, eventually we won't be able to drive it to zero so eventually yeah. we have to have that conversation and as i said that's a conversation maybe for a decade in the future so maybe it's dangerous to bring it up now in this sort of polarized climate because it might be misconstrued but mm. uh, eventually you have to sort of confront those issues where we won't be able to drive human-made air pollution to zero even if our sort of statistical-based health models tell us that we're still having health effects at very, very low levels. So we're not there yet, but eventually we have to confront it. For right now, we definitely should not be rolling back any of the standards. And if anything, we should be trying to take maybe one more step in that direction. This next question is asking about predicting the effects of climate trends on air quality. So if if we are able to predict the effects of climate trends on air quality, what would we be seeing in the future in terms of air quality and composition? Sure. Well, I mean, the number one thing is what we already talked about or introduced is wildfires. So mm -hmm. in the Western US, uh, the hotter, drier uh, systems are producing more wildfires and, and some of those are catastrophic. And uh, some of those are having a major air pollution impact over, you know, big population centers. So that has a, a pretty negative health consequence. So we're going to have to come up with a strategy to uh, try to mitigate that or, um, you know, try to, um, you know, lessen the health effects of that, provide shelters where people can go and, and come up with other strategies, I guess, to, to try to lessen that effect. Um, the and so that's a sort of a special source that that is driven by climate change. When we look at the sort of regular sources, so does the air pollution from your car or from your barbecue or from, you know, the chemical plant get worse because of climate change? That one gets a little bit tougher to answer. Um, for ozone, the hotter temperatures will promote more ozone formation. And so we we see in the past that on hot days, we tend to get more ozone. Uh, and, and that's from a combination of things. The, the chemistry speeds up, um, the air stays trapped closer to the ground, perhaps. Uh, and, you know, some of the uh, sources might emit more things that lead to ozone formation when the temperatures get hotter. So all of those things act in concert to sort of drive ozone concentrations up. Uh, so if nothing else changed, if climate change happened, then we would suffer what we call an ozone climate penalty, where we would have mm -hmm. a, some higher concentrations of ozone. The good news is, though, that as we work towards meeting the current standards, that that ozone climate penalty is getting smaller. And so we've seen that uh, it's decreased a lot between where we are now versus where we were in the 1970s. And if we look forward into the future, we can anticipate that that ozone climate penalty is going to go down even more. So uh, the good news is that if we meet our standards now, if we don't roll back those standards and we meet them, then uh, we should be okay on the ozone climate penalty. If, if we roll back the standards or we don't meet them, then, then we're going to suffer some sort of uh, consequences because climate change is going to sort of uh, double whammy us. Uh, we'll mm -hmm. suffer even more because of climate change. The, the question about climate effects on airborne particles uh, that are just from regular sources, like I said, your barbecue or your cars or, or you know, the chemical plants or whatever, uh, that's a that's a lot more complicated, and we've done a lot of studies of this and and tried to look really hard at it. It doesn't seem right now that climate change directly 
will have a big impact on the airborne particles that come from those regular sources. So we don't expect to see a direct effect of climate change increasing or decreasing those concentrations really. Mm. Um, but there's still a really interesting intersection between this question and it, it comes from the other direction. If we implement changes to try to meet our greenhouse gas emissions targets where we're trying to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, that's going to require a pretty big transformation of our energy system. And if we do that correctly, if we adopt new energy sources that have low uh, greenhouse gas emissions and we pay attention to which ones also have low air pollution emissions, um, then we have this opportunity to um, get a, a huge benefit, a, a co-benefit of, of transforming our energy systems. And when we've done some um, analysis of the future and looked at how large this might be, we think that you can reduce air pollution by enough to save thousands of lives a year in, in a place like California, um, maybe four or 5,000 lives a year. And then that has a price tag associated with it in terms of public health benefit of something like $20 billion a year of public health benefit. And so mm -hmm. we think that this is a great opportunity to... Um, you know, do the right thing by climate change and at the same time achieve some air quality goals that would be tough to achieve any other way anyway. And uh, it's going to return a great public health value that helps pay for those those new energy transformations that we think that we need. So it's an interesting confluence of, of air quality and, and climate, uh, but it sort of acts maybe in a different direction than what people might originally anticipate. So air quality goals and climate change goals could basically like go hand in hand? Yeah, they're very complementary if you think about it ahead of time. If, mm. you, if you truly think about the low carbon fuels that we could adopt and we um, think about how those will play out in what we call the criteria pollutants, the ones that would uh, influence air pollution, um, then if you are careful about how you do this, uh, then you can get a great co-benefit where you can you can take a next good step forward improving air quality at the same time that you reduce your greenhouse gas emissions. And that has a, a great win-win sort of scenario. It returns a great public health benefit uh, immediately by improving air quality. These are, these are effects that you feel not 100 years from now or 50 years from now, like there will be four to 5,000 people who still live instead of dying this year because of, of those choices. So it's an immediate co-benefit uh, rather mm. than some delayed sort of uh, fuzzier, this will be good for your kids climate argument. This is an immediate health benefit that the population can experience by adopting uh, these low carbon energy uh, choices. If you have an, an extra minute, I think we have one listener question that would fit pretty well with this. Um, it's, a, it's COVID related, so I hope that's okay. Okay, yeah, sure. Has there been a noticeable change in air quality due to the quarantining going on for COVID? I would think less cars driving would help, but I'm not sure if the increased electricity consumption at home would drive more pollution. And that's from Ian. There absolutely has been changes in air quality because of COVID. Um, when we did the shelter in place mandates, um, we saw some pretty big shifts uh, in emissions. You know, the cars were the most noticeable, you know, we, we suddenly had very, very few vehicles on the, on the road for a while there, and that definitely had an influence on the um, air pollution concentrations that we see. The 
you know, they weren't uniform across the, the even California, let alone the United States. Mm. And so um, as much as anything, they have been interesting to help us understand the chemical regimes that the air pollution is operating in. You know, that we we have certain chemical regimes that we think about and we know what's a dominant chemical pathway for pollution to form. And so as much as anything, this has been an interesting scientific question about, you know, which chemical regime were we starting in? Which one did we go to when we did the shelter in place orders? And then what does that mean for the emissions control programs that we're trying to advance over the next five or 10 years? You know, how this, this is like we did it overnight. Um, maybe a little bit of a preview. What does that tell us about the uh, you know, effectiveness of those controls and, and how they might, um, you know, maybe be uh, adapted to be even more effective in the future? So, so we can definitely see things happening. Um, it's been a very interesting experiment of opportunity, um, you know, try to, to make some good happen from a bad situation to, to mm. study these things. Is there anything else that you would think is beneficial for our listeners to hear? Any like recent research, anything interesting that you'd like to bring up or advocate or anything like that? Well, I, I mean, I guess I would return probably to the success stories that we've had over the past decades where we've mm. had, um, you know, the uh, confluence of the scientists, the regulators and the industry working together to solve problems. And I, I think that what I would say is that those things worked because uh, people uh, could agree on common facts and they were led by the scientific method where they could form a hypothesis and then look at common facts, you know, truths that uh, could be used to sort of accept or reject certain hypotheses. And uh, I, I think that if we want to make success or continue to, to have success in the future, to continue to make progress in, in an efficient way that actually, you know, we recognize that these things are expensive. And so we, we go cautiously in, you know, formulating new air pollution regulations. But if we are going to go down that road, we want them to at least be effective. And if we're going to have success in the future the way that we have in the past, we have to continue relying on the scientific method and and agree on using truthful science to guide those decisions. And so I, I guess in this uh, age of uh, polarization, I just argue that we should continue to make public policy decisions based on good science and mm. uh, come together, uh, scientists, regulators and industry to to all get that done. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. You're very welcome. This has been great. Anytime. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at NoPlanetBCast. Send us an email at NoPlanetBFSU at gmail.com. Follow us on TikTok, LinkedIn, NoPlanetB. You should be able to find us. Again, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review on iTunes. However you feel is appropriate, whatever number of stars you think is correct, we appreciate. And uh, yeah, have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much for listening.